Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome to the Inspire to Fire podcast. My name is Chris and I'm your host. And if you're new to the show, this show is all about inspiring you towards reaching financial independence. And if you're a return listener, welcome back. This is episode four. And today we've got Justin from The Root of Good joining us. He retired in 2013 and he's going to talk to us about exactly how he did it. He actually reached zero to millionaire status in 10 years. So I love the story that he's going to share with you guys because it shows that not everybody's going to reach financial independence in two or three years like you sometimes see with these headlines. Paid off $150,000, $200,000 in student loans and reached financial independence in three years. Yes, there may be some cases like that. However, you know, nothing beats old fashioned going to work nine to five, saving, investing and reaching financial independence at a reasonable time. So what I love is he actually reached financial independence at the age of 33, which, you know, again, in comparison to some of these stories that you hear, you might say it's not so impressive, but that is very impressive considering the fact that many Americans or, or people can't retire at the age of even 65. So I hope that that's something that you take away from this episode is that even if you're starting at the age of 33 or 40 or whatever age, you know, even if it takes you 10 years, you can still retire in your 40s or in your 50s. And that's well ahead of the traditional 65 um, age. And also, even if you're starting at 55 and you takes you 10 years to retire at 65, at least you're retiring very comfortably and you will have uh, a nice lifestyle to fall back on. So that's just one big takeaway that I got from the episode. But he also reached financial independence with kids, which is actually a big thing that that a lot of people say you can't reach financial independence with kids. Well, he had three kids on his way towards financial independence and he still made it. So he's going to talk to us a little bit about how he did that and trying to break that stigma. So anyways, real quick, I did want to mention that this episode is sponsored by Audible and in the description below, you can click the link and is an affiliate link. It does give you 30 days free trial of Audible and it gives you one premium credit. You can use that credit towards any book that you'd like. And the best part is after 30 days, you can simply cancel the free trial if you don't like it and you keep the book. So again, it's affiliate link. You're helping me and uh, you're helping my son, which that uh, little bit will be going into his investment account. But you're also helping yourself because you get 30 days free of Audible Premium Plus and you get to keep a free book. So click the link in the description below if you want to check that out. All right. So thank you for bearing with me with that. And now on to the show. Hey, Justin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Of course, no problem. Uh, I reached out to you just a few days ago over Twitter and uh, it's been two days and here here we are recording. So that must be a benefit of uh, early retirement, I'm guessing. Yeah, my schedule's uh, pretty free, so I can, uh, if I'm not busy, I can jump on something uh, pretty quickly. Cool, cool. So, um, yeah, thank you for joining again. So, your journey to financial independence is, uh, it's actually a long one, I would say, maybe for 10 years, if you would consider 10 years long, over a career span of maybe other people uh, doing 30-year careers. It's actually not long at all. But, um, yeah, I'd love to if you can share a little bit with the audience your your journey and um, how you got from zero to millionaire in those 10 years. Maybe not the whole thing at once, but just give us some background on that. Yeah. So, the, the simple version is, uh, you know, go to college, graduate. As soon as I started working after college, uh, within a year or so, I started researching some tax issues online just to figure out how to, you know, how to optimize my taxes. And I stumbled into the early retirement community 
and this was back in 2004, 2005, when it was a, there was a message board I found. So before most of the big blogs and podcasts, uh, you know, all of you guys were probably still in, in middle school or high school at that point. <laughs> um, so this was, you know, a long, long time ago, but basically worked for 10 years. Um, my wife and I, we both worked regular office jobs, working for 10 years, saving and investing, maxing out 401ks. IRAs most of that time, uh, just pretty boring index funds for the most part. And, uh, you know, fast forward 10 years later, and we had over a million dollars, which at the time was what we thought was plenty to live off of. And uh, in hindsight, it's it's uh, it's been nine years now. So we've almost doubled our portfolio since we quit working. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a good example of another decade of almost a decade of retirement. And we keep seeing our portfolio go up and up and up. Yeah, so I definitely want to get into that a little bit more because, yeah, that's one huge fear with early retirement is you don't know if that's going to be enough. And here you are, case study, almost 10 years later, and you actually have more than when you started. Um, that's just the power of compound interest, I'm, I'm assuming. Um, so going back to the beginning, though, when you discovered this, I, what was a lot of times we go into financial independence or the journey with a why? Um, did you have a why at that time? Was it that you hated your job or you wanted to spend more time somewhere, travel? What was your why to, to financial independence? I think some of not really caring for a nine to five job that much, that was certainly a, a, a big component. Uh, the biggest overriding motivation for me was just having that control over my own schedule and that autonomy. When I was working, I always had those days in, the, in springtime where it's really nice outside and I'm walking to work and and I'm looking around like, man, it'd be nice to just be able to say, I'm just going to hang out outside for a couple hours and just chill. But, you know, I, I have to go to the office and, and clock in and everything. And, and it's it's just, it wasn't that bad where I worked. I mean, I worked in an office, it was air conditioned, it was fine. But uh, just, I never had that ability to just say, hey, I'm just going to take a, take a day off and do whatever I want to do. Um, and now I'm able to do that essentially every single day of, you know, seven days a week. Uh, so, so that's the, the biggest thing is I just wanted to reclaim my own time, get my schedule to where I could do whatever I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it instead of, you know, focusing on Monday through Friday as work and then cramming everything fun into the weekends along with chores and that sort of thing. Right, right. Yeah. So you were able to uh, get some of that time back, like you said, and, and it's amazing how um, a lot of times on the weekends, like you said, you've got a lot of errands to do. Things are busier and more expensive. Um, during the week, everything's empty because people are going to work and um, you have the places to yourself. So that's another benefit, I'm assuming, to financial independence retire early as well. Yeah, we, you know, grocery stores, at least before the pandemic, when everybody started doing work from home, but up until 2020, it was great. Um, grocery stores were empty, you know, 10 a.m. <laughs> on a Tuesday, go grocery shopping, no one's there, no crowds. Um, the roads are a lot emptier. Uh, if you're, go, you know, if you go shopping, go out, do stuff uh, during the week, the greenway trails, hiking trails, nobody's out there. Um, you know, Monday through Friday, people, people were always working. And so, you know, it was, it was nice to have these nice private areas out there in, in nature that were essentially all to all to myself instead of sharing it with another hundred people that are out there competing for space on the weekends. Right, right. And I also want to talk a little bit about the fire, your fire number. Um, you mentioned it was about 1.2 or so, 1.2 million. Yeah, about 1.2 million. Did that number change at all from the beginning to, uh, to the end or during those 10 years? Um, yes. Uh, so that was something that I learned along the way. When I started, you know, back in my first year or two of working, I put together a spreadsheet and I found it a year or two ago. I found the spreadsheet that I first put together. And essentially, <laughs> awesome. I thought I would need about $2.5 million dollars. When I was, you know, when I had almost nothing to my name, uh, I, I said, okay, I need about 2.5 million because I just, I didn't know how much I was spending. I didn't know exactly what I would need. And I just said, this is a number I'm aiming for because it seems reasonable. And, and a lot of places online were saying things like, you know, you need two point, you need $2 million, you need $3 million to be able to retire. And so I just said, okay, it makes sense. And yeah. And then along the way, I learned, know how much you need is really informed by how much you plan on spending in retirement. And what other sources of income do you have? So it's, it's sort of a more complicated answer than just 2 million or 3 million or, or 80% of your income. I mean, that's another rule of thumb that's just almost meaningless. 
Right. So I, so I think just fine tuning our number over the years based on our actual needs and how much we were actually spending. That's really how we got down to that uh, 1.2 million figure. Uh, yeah, it sounds like maybe at the beginning what you found or, or actually what I found too initially when I was looking into retirement calculations is just a typical retirement calculator that asks you what's your current income. Uh, okay, you're going to need about 80% for some reason or another. That's just what they estimate. Um, so it sounds like that's maybe where you got that 2.5 number. But then as you went along, you might have found like more of a traditional fire number that we know or fire calculator that we know nowadays, which is like, you know, 25 times your annual expenses. Yeah, that's that's essentially, I think, how my how my thinking evolved over that the decade of working was just following that rule of thumb, the 80 percent rule, which doesn't really mean a whole lot. Um, unless you're spending almost everything you make, in which case, yeah, you're going to need to replace your income with about 80% of it because your taxes go down a little bit. You're not saving for retirement anymore, but you're still spending almost your entire paycheck. Um, Mm -hmm. so for, you know, for the traditional 65 year old retiree that spends almost everything they make eh, you know, 80% is not a bad rule of thumb to aim for long-term, but, but you really have to fine tune it when you get down to how much you're actually going to spend, how much are you, do you need to budget for, how much do you need to save and invest to be able to fund your retirement, and then add in things like Social Security, pension, uh, rental income, that sort of thing. Yeah. So did you treat those as uh, extras or basically uh, the cherry on top pretty much? If, if they're around, uh, you'll take advantage of it, but you didn't want to bank on it maybe? Yeah. I, Social Security um, is essentially was going to be more than 30 years after I quit working when I can get Social Security. And so you can put it in those financial calculators, different financial calculators like CFRSIM or FireCalc. You can model out Social Security uh, 30, you know, if you're, if you're retiring in your 30s and then you're modeling Social Security 30 years after you quit working, it really doesn't have a big impact on how much money you can withdraw or how safe your plan is. So my understanding of Social Security and what role it plays was essentially it's a nice safety net that will cover a lot of our expenses, but probably not all of them uh, if our portfolio ends up close to zero by the time we're in our 60s. So at least there'll be something there. You know, If we have a paid off house and Social Security, we'll probably be okay. A lot of Americans live like that right now, and we would just be living like a lot of you know average, everyday retired Americans. Yeah. And I don't know the full details behind the calculation of how much you get for Social Security, but I do know it's based on your highest annual salary um, for I don't know how many years. So, you know, if you're retiring in your 30s, for example, that's a lot of years where you're leaving off off the table where they can go into that calculation. But um, like you said, you got a nest egg that's going to hopefully cover you there. And Getting to salary, I did want to talk a little bit about like, what was your highest salary? I know you break it down in that post, which I'm going to link in the show notes. But if you can share with the audience a little bit about like your income or salary trajectory, and then at what point was the highest salary um, for the family? Yeah, we so we both started out um, between 40 and $50,000 per year. Now, this is back in 2004, 2005 timeframe. So there's some inflation in there. So we started, you know, forty to fifty thousand per year, and worked our way up to about seventy thousand dollars each. Um, I did just adjust that seventy thousand dollars for inflation, and it's about eighty six thousand dollars per year in twenty twenty two dollars. So for comparison purposes, we never actually made more than six figures, not even in today's dollars, let alone in twenty thirteen dollars when I quit working. Um, so you know, a very nice salary for a college graduate, eighty six thousand per year in today's dollars, but never six figures. So I think it's it just comes down to, you know, it's doable here in Raleigh uh, where the cost of living is not extremely high. Uh, I think it would be harder to save and invest and retire very early if you're making 86000 and you live in a very high cost of living area. Uh, we also had the advantage of two of us making 86000 per year. So we basically lived off of one income or even less than one income. And then we we saved and invested the other income. So we so we had uh, you know very good source of income that allowed us to save more than half of our income most years. Um, we never needed to. We, we were able to take a lot of risks too. So we were essentially 100% equities during our entire working careers because we always knew if one of us gets let go and the other person still has a job, we can cover all our basic living expenses without any problem. So so we were we're pretty capable of taking on a lot of risk in the stock market just because uh, we did not 
rely on both jobs. We only needed one of our jobs to survive day to day. Um, so that's, you know, that kind of helped out to being pretty heavy in equities. Yeah. And um, so you're talking about equities just real quick. Um, we did experience just a recent market downturn. Um, we're recording this in June 2022. I believe April and May 2022 were a bit up and down. Um, someone going through something, you went through 2008, um, I, I recall, if, if I'm not mistaken there. How does it feel? Uh, I guess, obviously, this isn't to the extent of 2008, but you aren't generating income anymore. You're retired early at this point. So, can you talk to me a little bit about your thoughts or feelings when there is a market downturn? And then also, how did you feel in 2008 when you were maybe a little bit less of a seasoned investor? I would say today feels much, much less worrisome than it did in 2008 and early 2009. And I think it's it's mainly just because it was pretty dark and depressing back in 08, 09. And, and numerically, at least, I know every month I would dump in thousands and thousands of dollars to my 401k, my IRA. Uh, but every, every quarter I would do my financial update. I look at my numbers and literally every quarter for, for 18 months straight, we kept going down and down and down in value. So we're dumping in thousands and thousands of dollars per month and we're losing money every single quarter down, 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 you know, uh, six consecutive quarters just because the stock market was so horrible for, you know, 18 straight months. Um, and then that turned very abruptly in March, 2009, and it just took off like skyrocket. I mean, went crazy after that. And so it was, you know, it was a pretty dark time back in March, 2009, when people, people really thought, you know, this is the end of the end of capitalism, the end of America, the end of our economy, the end of banking. Uh, and, you know, people said that it wasn't like doom and gloom fear. I mean, people really thought this genuinely. So it felt a lot, lot worse than it does, you know, today in June 2022. That said, I mean, a lot of people have lost a lot of money. Um, you know, the, the I think the overall indexes were down 20 percent as of as of the end of May. Uh, people that were heavy into crypto and crypto wasn't something that really was a thing uh, back in, in 08, 09 when I was losing money back then. Uh, today, I mean, people are, I see people down 50, 60% in crypto. Some of them had leverage in there and they lost hundred percent or they were in some of these things that just disappeared and they lost hundred percent, at least of their crypto component of their investments. And, and, and they're, you know, some of them are really deep into it. And so I, I think there is that sense of worry, depending on your asset allocation today. Um, a lot of, you know, passive index fund investors, um, if you have some international diverse diversification, if you're doing more, some more value or small cap investing, you really haven't even seen that 20% downturn that, you know, the, the VTSAX, the overall S&P 500 kind of investors, um, th- those have actually been some of the hardest hit just buying the plain old VTSAX index that we always talk about. That's been down the most this year. So um, we actually haven't been down too awful much this year. So we've, we've done relatively well in 2022. And so it hasn't bothered me too much. I think inflation is a you know a bigger concern for a lot of people. I mean, that seems to be uh, eroding buying power, watching your wages decline in real terms over the years. Uh, you know, inflation was eight or nine percent last year. And, and that's that's a published number that for a lot of people, their number is a lot higher. You know, you're seeing groceries, gas, rent, all those things have gone up 30, 40, 50 percent locally, at least uh, to mm-hmm. where. You're, if you're even if you're getting a fifteen percent raise, if you're paying fifty percent more for most of the stuff that you're spending money on, you're a lot poorer today than you were a year or two ago. And everyone's spending is different, but I mean, everyone's spending on transportation, everyone's spending on food, everyone's spending on lodging to some extent. So if you're a renter or trying to buy a house, interest rates are up now. Houses cost more. It's you know it's it's tough times. There's no way around that. Um, you know, as a early retiree, um, I own my house. It's paid off. I'm not worried about it. I don't pay interest on it. Uh, my, my property taxes will definitely go up. We've already seen, you know, minimum of five or 6% increase this year, maybe more depending on what they end up passing. But a lot of my housing costs are relatively fixed. So I'm, you know, that component of my spending should not go up a whole lot overall because there's no mortgage payment. There's no rent. Um, the portfolio is kind of hanging in there, you know, not going down <laughs> a whole lot yet. So I'm not too worried yet personally. Uh, it, you know, it definitely feels a lot different in 2022 with me where I am. I will also add in that, you know, our portfolio has doubled since we quit working nine years ago. 
Uh, and so we have, we can basically afford to take a 50% stock market crash and kind of still be where we were 10 years ago, except we also are, it's nine years ago, but we're nine years closer to social security. So, you know, now me looking out, I'm like, okay, we're, you're, you know, we're within 20 years of getting social security now. Um, it's a little bit closer. We only need to, you know, we only need our money to last 20 years or so, or at least most of it, 20 years. So, so that's another thing that's factoring into my not worrying as much as just, you know, we've got less, less life to cover, less, less living expenses to cover out of a portfolio and a portfolio has just gone up a lot in the last nine years. Yeah. Um, I just, I always like to, when I get a chance, you know, get the perspective of somebody who is not generating as much income anymore because they're on that post-fi, uh, that post-fi stage in life. But, uh, you know, how does it feel? I'm sure it's still got a, we still look, even though we know we shouldn't, you know, we still pay attention because we just can't help ourselves. So it's always curious to me, like what, what's going on in, in, in that time, because I feel like I am going to get to that point as well. And I, want to prepare myself and I want to prepare the audience as much as possible as well for any market downturn. Um, it seems like sequence of returns, which is kind of the point in time where you ac- actually call it quits, what happens within maybe the next two to five years after? Is the market going up or is the market going down? Um, yeah, I can imagine your portfolio would look very different if you called it quits in 2007, for example, versus you know, when you did, which was in 2013 or so, I believe. Yeah. So, um, you definitely got a good head start there and that's all we can hope for. So, one quick thing about the 2008 crash, I know it was very bleak and and I remember speaking to, uh, actually spoke to J.L. Collins in the first season and he was just describing just how bad it was. As you mentioned, it was, it was a real concern. So, what kept you so, I guess, what kept you so strong or, or what they would say now with diamond hands, you know, what kept you holding on and not even just holding on, but throwing thousands of dollars every quarter when you would see, you know, continue to see red, what, what was going through your head or what, yeah. What gave you that fortitude? I'm not a big market timer or stock market valuation person, just an index fund, boring investor. But at the time, I mean, I did look at some of the price to earnings multiples of, of the stock market indexes overall. And I could look at it and say, you know, some of these things are just trading at these insanely low valuations of where you're you're paying three, four, five times annual earnings to buy these companies. And people today are okay paying 25 or 30 <laughs> times of earnings, or they were, you know, a few months ago. And so I, I looked at it and I, I quickly said, historically, this is probably going to be the best buying opportunity of my life, um, you know, back in, in early 2009. Uh, and then it kept dropping another month or two after that point. But uh, that's the joke. But uh, but, it, but you know, looking at it, I said, we don't need the money today. We can afford to invest for that long term. And, you know, I'm thinking 10 years out to retirement at this point, potentially in, in 09, uh, because we didn't have, we had a couple hundred thousand dollars. That was it in 09 because we kept losing money. <laughs> but it was really just, we, we knew we had two incomes and only needed one of them to live off of. So if one of us lost the job, we'd be okay. So we were okay financially. You know, we did have several hundred thousand dollars saved up in investments. So if we did need to tap some of that money, we could always sell it, cash out and live off of it for a while. And, uh, and just, you know, just looked at it. I said, this is, you know, historically, this is probably going to be the best opportunity of my life to invest in the stock market right now. And we really haven't seen it since. I mean, not even in March 2020 during the pandemic crash, I don't think valuations got anywhere close to what they were back in 09. And, and it just, it, it turned so quickly that unless you were ready to jump on it, there was, um, there's no way to really get your money in there. Whereas in 09, you, you know, you had 18 months of it going down where you could keep investing pretty hard in there. So, but it was, it was just, um, I think keeping your eye on the big picture of, I was investing for decades and not day to day or month to month. Yeah. And I, I thank you for, for sharing that because that's so crucial is that mindset. I do remember the only chance that I got, because like you mentioned, in 2008, I was still in school. So yeah, the only chance I really got at a market downturn was uh, March of 2020. And uh, it was over in a flash. And before I knew it, it was back up again. So, um, But I do remember that while it was dipping, I said to myself, this might be one of those opportunities again. So once you get that mindset shift, it, it does change you as an investor. So um, thank you for sharing that. I want to jump back a little bit to the funds and and how you took advantage of tax advantage accounts. So you put a lot into 401ks, HSAs, as you mentioned, I think you might've even used the 457 plan, which 
I spoke about it in a couple of episodes previous. It's an awesome retirement plan as well for financially independent or people on their fire journey, right? Um, but now that you are post-fi, how are you accessing that money? Because, uh, well, except for the 457 plan, all the other accounts are supposed to be not uh, accessible, right? Until you're 59 and a half. So, how, how are you doing that? Yeah, a few different strategies. Um, that 457, like you mentioned, I do have that. Uh, I, I was only at the state for three or three or four years where I could contribute to a 457, but it has since grown to about $125,000 now. So that's, you know, several years of our living expenses that's, that's saved up in there that I could pull out anytime, just pay tax on it. But the, the first, the first bucket of money we're pulling from right now, we're still spending from it is our taxable brokerage account. So we were able to max out all these retirement accounts and then also put several thousand dollars per month, some months into a taxable brokerage account, you know, just open up a Vanguard account, mutual fund, ETF kind of thing, uh, index funds. Uh, but we kept piling money away in there. And so we started out with, um, I don't know, probably about 10 or 12 years of living expenses in a taxable brokerage account. And the plan was basically spend all that money down, deplete it to zero, and then rely on some other sources of funds like the 457 to get between ages, you know, get from our 40s up to age 59 and a half when we can pull money out of the, the IRAs without a penalty. Um, so as it's turned out, the last however, you know, nine years of retirement, we've had pretty good stock market returns. And so our taxable account actually is is worth as much or more now compared to what it was back in, in 2013. Um, so we, you know, probably still have probably still nine or 10 years of runway left in our taxable account. So we're going to get up to, uh, my wife will be probably fit in her early fifties by the time we've depleted our taxable account at this rate. Uh, so, so we're, you know, we're doing pretty well with accessing funds before age 59 and a half without paying a penalty. And then the, the next bucket of money after we deplete a taxable account, the next bucket of money is going to be, uh, coming from our Roth accounts. So this is a, a, a good technique for people planning on retiring in their 30s or 40s. Roth IRA contributions, the, the 6000 per year that you put in, uh, those you can pull out anytime you want, tax-free and penalty-free. Uh, so if you're working for 10 years, you and your spouse, that'd be $120,000 of contributions you can put into your Roth IRAs over the course of a 10-year career. Uh, and then if you're doing some part-time work during high school or college, or if you, you know, if you end up doing some part-time work after you're retired, you may end up being able to put even more money into these things, uh, even, you know, or if you're working 20 years instead of 10 years. So a lot of people end up with several hundred thousand dollars of contributions in a Roth IRA. And then on top of that, so, so we have, I don't, don't know ex the exact number, but you know, probably a hundred thousand dollars or so of contributions to these various Roth accounts. And in addition to that, uh, since I quit working, I'm in a much lower tax bracket. And so I'm able to do this thing called Roth IRA conversions, or sometimes it's called the Roth IRA conversion ladder. And in a nutshell, so it's basically taking all those traditional IRA, traditional 401k contributions that I put in when I was working. So I was saving a lot of taxes at the time, getting these nice deductions from all these tax deductible retirement account contributions. I'm taking all that traditional IRA money and I'm rolling over bits and pieces of it each year. So some years, 5,000, some years, 10, some years, 20,000. I'm rolling it over from traditional IRA to Roth IRA. And then those, so those contributions after five more years of, after you convert it, those contributions that you're rolling over, you can deduct or you can withdraw those uh, contributions tax-free and penalty-free after five years. So anything that I did in 2017, any conversion in 2017, now I can pull it out in 2022 and it's tax-free and penalty-free. So I'm sort of setting myself up to, you know, after my taxable account is gone and I'm not quite 59 and a half yet, you know, maybe I'm five or 10 years away from it. Um, I'm going to be able to pull out all I need from all these Roth conversions that I've been doing over the last decade or so. Uh, so that's, that's that long-term plan is do enough Roth conversions each year to, to get me to the point where, you know, I have four or $500,000 of Roth conversions and contributions altogether uh, by age 50 or so. And then I'll be able to pull out the 40,000 per year or whatever I end up needing um, from that point up until age 59 and a half. And then I can, you know, I can get access to accounts a lot easier. So, um, so that's, that's kind of a nutshell taxable account first, deplete it, 
457 account withdrawals as needed, and then the Roth con- Roth conversions each year, so that in my later years I'll be able to pull those Roth conversions out tax free and penalty free. Yeah, that that's a wonderful breakdown, and yeah, you touched on two um, basically two tools in, in like our tool belt that we can use as as early retirees, which is that 457 and Roth conversions. And it just speaks to the benefit of being able to control your tax rate, really. And, and when you can control your expenses, you can control your tax rate and um, pretty much pay the tax rate that you want at that point. Um, you can decide to go 10, 12, 20%, whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, so that is pretty awesome. I do want to also ask you real quick before we get into um, reaching fire with kids, how was the transition from work to early retirement that maybe that year or so when you were like, am I ready? Am I not? Is this really happening? What? How did that go about? And and yeah, if you can just tell me your, your feelings during that time. So, so the, the year, I guess the first year after I quit working, I thought it was going to be like flipping a switch where I would go from working to retired. And, and I had always heard it's going to take about six months to really decompress and get into your new routine. And I said, oh, no, not for me. You know, I'm, I'm ready for it. I've, I've been studying for this day, every, you know, every day of my <laughs> life. I'm ready for this. I've been training for this. And, and sure enough, I mean, the, the old advice, the standby advice was true. Uh, it did take me six or eight months to really slow down and transition from, you know, that productivity mindset, getting things done something that's helpful in a career to embracing leisure, embracing doing nothing, embracing relaxation time, um, not trying to maintain a lot of productive things every day. Uh, so, so it, it, I mean, the cool part was I ended up starting a blog right after I quit working and it took off pretty well because I put a lot of time into it, a lot of time and effort. And I mean, I was just used to that. That was just what you do when you're working is you produce things and do a good job. So I did that pretty hard for six or eight months and then kind of said, wait a second, I've just traded one job for another. So I, I sort of <laughs> backed off of, of, you know, not working on my blog as hard, took more time off just to do fun stuff. Uh, we started traveling more and just, you know, it, it was, but it took a while to really, to really get into that mindset of, okay, what do I want to do every day for the rest of my life? Um, and it's the, instead of just thinking, I just need to be productive, you know, and it is a little bit of a challenge if you are, you know, a lot of people in the fire community, they, they're doing a good job in their careers. They're working hard. They have lots of education. They, you know, they're, they're good at what they do. Yeah. And, and there's a reason they're able to retire in their thirties and forties. And it's because they're productive, you know, they're, they're highly compensated, productive people. And I think to flip that switch off, uh, it, it, it's, you know, even if you don't think it will be for you, it could be a challenge that you got to get, get ready for and just, you know, adapt and cope the best you can. And, um, and sometimes it, you know, it ends up, you do something a little bit productive in early retirement and most of your day is, is leisure and, and free time. And some of it's, you know, doing something productive, blogs, podcasts, um, you know, people get part-time jobs, hobby jobs, Etsy crafts. I mean, there's all, you know, tutoring, dog walking. I've seen all kinds of people do all kinds of stuff where, you know, is it retirement? Is it work? Is it like, how do you define it? And, and I think it's, I think outside of the fire community or outside of, you know, the concept of having an early retirement police, most people are just living their lives. However, you know, if you, once you have the assets to provide that income you need, you know, if you don't really need the money, you can kind of choose to do whatever you want with your days. And maybe some of that ends up making some money. Right, right. Yeah. And um, it, it must mean a lot that uh, you're still posting. I think you just posted an uh, update for May 2022 yesterday on your blog. So, I always, um, you know, find it interesting when someone posts fi joins, uh, let's say, the show or uh, does something on their blog. It must mean a lot more because you can choose to do anything yeah. you want at this point. Um, and you're choosing to, uh, you know, take some time to record and also, you know, update your blog. So, you're right. You can just kind of choose whatever you're passionate about. And it's, uh, it's a good problem to have, you know. Uh, feeling guilty for a nap is uh, not too bad. <laughs> All right. So, Let's talk about uh, just this next section here. I just wanted to go over a little bit about reaching fire with kids. Okay. Um, you have three kids of your own, but I actually thought it was impossible to reach early retirement with kids. Uh, you know, isn't, is that right? I thought it was, uh, that's, that's not possible at all. I've heard the same objection <laughs> and it's, I mean, empirically it is possible. I did it. Uh, <laughs> it can be challenging. Obviously it makes it 
probably makes it harder to, to have kids and retire early. I mean, just mathematically, you, you do need a, you know, you can't live in a studio apartment with three kids. Um, you probably need a car in most places in the U.S. with kids. If you have two adults in the household, you probably need two cars. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's extra expenses that you do have when there's kids. Um, our house, you know, it's a regular in Raleigh, it's a regular four bedroom house. It's, you know, nothing fancy or big or special, but you know, it, it's more expensive than if we were to rent a little studio or one bedroom apartment. That said, it's not that much more expensive. Um, and it's gone up in value over the last 20 years. So in our cars, I mean, we, we, we drove the same two Hondas for, for 16 years and then sold the two of them and got traded them in for one minivan. So it really wasn't, you know, wasn't a lot more out of pocket than just our other two cars because we went to one car because we're not working anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I think it's, it's something that's doable. Retiring early with kids is doable as long as you're budgeting and planning for it. And it, and it depends on your, your situation. I mean, I've, I've seen people in high cost of living areas, they're paying uh, 20,000 per year per kid for daycare. And obviously, you know, doing that for four or five years uh, when the kids are not in kindergarten yet, that's, $100,000 per kid right there, you know, before age five, that's going to take a while to overcome. If one of the spouses takes off work and stays home with the kids, I mean, that's five years of lost income. Maybe, you know, if you have three or four kids, that could be seven or eight or 10 years of lost income. And, and so, so, I mean, there are hurdles to overcome, but at the end of the day, I mean, it comes down to the math of if you're saving and investing and continuing to accumulate more and more assets you're going to get there eventually. It's just a matter of, you know, is it going to be 10 years like me or is it going to be 12 years or 20 years? And it just takes perseverance. So uh, I think you, I think you economize where you can with kids and then the rest of it, you just say, okay, this is just the cost of of having kids. And that's part of the deal we signed up for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So one of the big uh, parts and, and I actually, my wife was the one we, we have a, a son of our own. So He's one and a half at this point, and that's something that my wife and I have spoken about, and she was very concerned over school and uh, what's going to happen. Like, we need, do we need to have a significant nest egg for them uh, to cover their college experience or college education? And, um, you know, I'm uh, of the opinion that I don't want to necessarily save the total amount of their, uh, of his college experience because it's just actually at this point probably not doable. But um, we don't know what it's going to be like in 18 years, right? Um, so, that's my perspective. But there are a lot of people like my wife who want to really um, get them head start and, and you know, hopefully uh, have them graduate with as less debt as possible. So, is there something that you were doing or planning at this point for that as well? Have you given that as well some some thought? I'm sure you have. Yeah, yeah we actually – so, our, our kids are – one of them just finished her essentially her 11th grade year this year, just today. Uh, and the other one just is graduating on uh, Tuesday from high awesome. school. So we are at the tail end of the high school experience now. Um, we'll have one going into college in the fall, and then the other one will start college in the following fall, 2023. So, so two kids are about to incur a lot of college expenses, maybe. Um, I say maybe we'll get into that. But what we did early on you know, when they were little tiny kids, uh, two, three or four years old, uh, we got a tax deduction for doing some 529 contributions. So we did that for four or five years. Um, I think it was maybe $350 we got back when we put in 5,000 per year. So we did that, put in about $25,000 total. Uh, this was back, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007, somewhere in that, that time period up through probably 2008 or nine. Um, so, you know, putting about $25,000 and the goal was to just let that grow over time and hopefully have enough money to pay for two or three years of tuition for each kid. And, you know, there's so many unknowns. If we go back in time, 15 years, 12 years, whenever, when we're saving, started the college savings, uh, we didn't know how much college tuition would be. We didn't know, is college even going to be a thing? Um, we didn't know, you know, are the kids going to even go to college? Are they going to get into college? Are they going to get a full ride scholarship? Um, as as early retirees, our income's pretty low. Are they going to get need based aid? Um, so so now we're you know fast forward twelve or thirteen years after we first started saving for college, and we ended up having enough in the five twenty nine account. It had more than tripled. We have enough in there to pay for, gosh, probably about three and a half years of tuition alone at a state university, really good state university here 
um, NC State University or University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So, you know, top tier state universities. Um, we can almost cover the, four, the, the whole four years for all four, all three of the kids we have at the 529 savings. Obviously, room and board, books, those are all extra. But, you know, we've come a long way in terms of if, if we don't have any more money, we at least have enough where they can go to school, cover their tuition, live at home if they need to, and, and get a, a good, solid education and graduate debt-free potentially. So we kind of hit those goals that we wanted to hit. It was an individual decision. We didn't ever want to have, you know, $100,000 per kid or a quarter million per kid or whatever the numbers they're throwing around now. That was never our goal. It was really just to cover most of their tuition alone. And then we would kind of figure it out. If we had money, we could help out more. And if we didn't have a lot of money, you know, maybe they get loans, maybe they do part-time work, that kind of thing. As it's turned out, we've found a lot of programs to help out. Uh, The community college program here is really great in North Carolina. A lot of other states have it. You can take your first two years of university education at community college, and it's actually free here. So, so essentially, the kids will end up getting you know the the fifty thousand dollars for that first two years of state university. Well, it ends up being zero dollars. That's huge. That's huge. And so, so we've already cut the cost in half. Um, and then beyond that, there's you know there's need based aid that we're going to qualify for just because our on our tax form. We have a relatively low income, so we'll probably get some need-based aid. So community college may actually be a moneymaker for us uh, when it's all said and done. And then, you know, maybe they go to the university and maybe it is expensive, but, you know, we've got the savings there. So we've saved up. We can can pay for the rest of it. Um, So it's really, as it's turned out, there's a lot of other sources of money. So I'm really glad we did not put too much into a 529. And I tell people that a lot is... You know, 529 is great if you want to save some of the money for college in there, but you really, unless you're hitting all your other financial goals and maxing out retirement accounts, that kind of thing, probably don't focus on, you know, don't put too much into a 529 early on because you can always pay for kids' education other ways. And they may get scholarships. Um, You know, one of our kids just did really well on the pre-ACT. So we're thinking she may end up getting some decent scholarship money just from academics. Um, And so that's, you know, that's always an outcome that it's hard to predict when they're four or five years old, how they're going to (laughs) do when they're 17 or 18 years old. Uh, You can't really predict that. But that's why we did not oversave in the 529. Yeah. And and I love that you mentioned. So I just want to highlight two points that really stood out to me, which is that 529 plan, how much it really grew. So just the importance again of starting early and let the market really take over and help you along the way. And then you would just be surprised at what can occur in five, 10 or 15 years as, uh, as the example that you put out there is, is, is the case. Um, and then the other part that jumped out at me was just that FAFSA, even if you do need some sort of, uh, you know, or realistically, right, we're not gonna, not everybody's going to be able to take care of the, of college tuition completely. So needing, um, forms of, of aid, FAFSA does not count, uh, I guess I should say, assets in four in four hundred one ks and four fifty sevens and those type of accounts uh, against you. Is that right? So if yeah. you if you have a million dollars in your four hundred one k, you can still, depending on your situation, still get FAFSA for your children. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's pretty complicated how the formulas work, but essentially you're right. They do not look at your retirement assets uh, if you're strictly following the FAFSA. Um, some universities have a form, I think it's called the CSS, and they do look more in depth at some of your other assets. Um, but but your yeah your 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 retirement accounts for the FAFSA do not count. So things like um, you know things like Pell grants, if if your you know if your income is low enough and you don't have a lot of assets in a taxable brokerage account there's a good chance a lot of early retirees will end up qualifying for some form of, of Pell Grant, which is just free money. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you know, there's always subsidized loans that you could take them out when the kid's a freshman in college and then use your portfolio to repay them when they're a senior, if you want to pay them off. Um, that's also something we may end up doing depending on, you know, what, what the kids want to do as well. If they want to play that arbitrage game, we'll, we'll definitely <laughs> help out, um, you know, help them, help them do that um, if, if they want to. Awesome. Awesome. So I am going to link some of those uh, resources up because I know you have a, a whole post really on like how you're, you're getting uh, kids set up and, and the, the program that you mentioned for free, basically two years at the community college. Um, so I'm going to have those linked up in the description below. I did want to just uh, kind of start wrapping up with a couple questions here. 
What has financial independence allowed you to do that maybe you wouldn't have been able to do in regards to life, kids, and your family? Yeah, I think probably the two biggest things is just uh, my wife and I, we're both basically stay-at-home parents where we've been here for the kids as they've grown up, helping out at school, helping out at home, uh, making sure they're on the right path with education and life and everything. So I, th- I think having that presence has I don't know if they'd always agree with us about this, but, you know, I, I think it's, it's been a positive thing overall, um, just being here and stress reduction as well. You know, not not having a very limited amount of time, having plenty of free time. It's helped the stress levels go down a lot, which helps kind of keep things more peaceful in the house overall. Uh, that's a nice side benefit. Uh, and then, the you know, the other huge benefit lifestyle wise is just having huge chunks of time available, you know, several weeks or several months at a time. Um, where every summer, except 2020, when we know what happened, pandemic, um, every other summer we've been able to take vacations of six or eight weeks usually and go somewhere interesting that we haven't been to before or maybe go back and revisit places. So um, so we spent a summer in Europe, a summer in the Bahamas, summer in Mexico, a summer in Asia, done several road trips um, across the U.S. and Canada. So um, it's, it's, I think this is our eighth big summer trip. We're getting ready to head out to Europe for a little over eight weeks. Nice. Yeah. I saw Croatia. Is that right? Yeah. We're going to Croatia, Slovenia, and Hungary. Nice. Nice. That's, uh, I, I'm going to live through you. I can't wait for the uh, updates on the blog post for that one. And, uh, yep. I also saw you might be going on a cruise, uh, later on this year. Is that right? Yeah, we, we try to go on a cruise once or twice a year, and we're doing pretty good. Uh, we're, we're making up for lost time during the pandemic. So we um, <laughs> we just went on two cruises, actually three cruises in the last six months or so. And we, we booked another cruise for the fall, and then we have one next January as well. So we, we're kind of booking up our travel schedule for the fall and into next spring right now. Cool, cool. All right. And then uh, lastly here... Just a few tips if you have any to anyone who has kids listening to the show and, you know, wants to pursue financial independence or maybe is trying, but they really can't see, um, you know, how, uh, what, what are some tips that maybe can help and, um, you know, if you can share that with them? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, I think finding a school district that had good schools, um, not having to pay for private tuition. I know it's not always possible depending on house prices and, you know, you're paying a premium in some school districts that really helped us a lot of um, not, you know, not having 13 years of K through 12 education that was expensive. Um, mm-hmm. So exploring public schools, exploring charter schools, uh, homeschooling, if that's something that, that interests you saving on the, you know, saving on private school tuition, not paying that, that was a big thing for us, obviously that let us get ahead and keep our, keep our costs down for three kids uh, vehicles, I, I was just joking about this with my wife the other day about how everyone has to buy a seven seater SUV as soon as they have the <laughs> second kid. And I don't really understand why exactly. I mean, I understand they have to haul a bunch of stuff, but like we, we did okay with a Honda Accord and a Honda Civic up until, you know, we had three kids and at some point, yeah, okay, we need a bigger car. And then we got a relatively fuel efficient minivan and that was a lot cheaper than an SUV. And, and it's great for road trips, by the way, uh, minivans are, are really good for that. But I think be critical about your expenses um, for the you know car you're driving, house. You know how much house do you need? Do you, do you need a five bedroom house if you have one kid or two kids? Maybe not. So uh, focus on expenses and be critical about them. But but also you know don't deprive your kids of everything. I mean it's it's their childhood. Don't be afraid to spend money where it, where it matters. Um, you know do enrichment activities, take them on trips, do fun stuff. And then, you know, college savings, obviously having that money invested pretty early on helped out a lot now that it's, it solves a lot of problems where we don't really have to worry about paying for college. So I, I think focusing early on college savings and then kind of letting it grow over time w- was helpful. And uh, just, you know, keeping your expenses low where you can and just realizing that it's possible, but it may, you know, having kids will cost something. It's just going to take, may take you a couple extra years to get to financial independence, but it's, it's not a complete impediment to ever getting there it's just some you know something else you have to take care of financially yeah that's awesome and i love those tips it actually reminds me of my son so i recently bought him um you know some something to uh like a toy basically um it came in a box and uh he actually enjoyed playing with the box more than the toy <laughs> so you know that's just the kids and um you realize that 
sometimes you don't need to spend. And um, but you know now he plays with the hoy because I make him. But yeah. uh, he loved that box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've, we've we've experienced that too. Boxes are pretty fun for kids, and and that's that's some of like you know you don't necessarily have to spend a ton of money on something fancy. Sometimes it's just spending time with them, playing with that box. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Justin, thank you so much for joining the show and and sharing all that knowledge with us. So, um, anything exciting? Uh, I know you mentioned the trips or anything, but anything with your blog or or life in general, anything you got coming up? And then also, where can people find more of you? Yeah, uh, so for us, big stuff coming up is our big trip to Europe right now. Uh, we're getting ready to head out pretty soon and stay in Europe until August for a little over uh, eight weeks. Um, other than that, man, it's just like day to day, taking care of business, keeping the kids, uh, moving forward academically. <laughs> um, there's my blog. If you want to keep up with me, uh, root of And I'm active on Twitter. Mostly, um, the handle on there is root of good blog. So check me out on Twitter if you want to interact online. And I'm also on Facebook, not as active on there, but root of good has a, has a page on Facebook as well. And I'm, I think I'm elsewhere on Instagram and some Pinterest or something, but I don't ever use those. So don't <laughs> find me if you want, but I don't really do anything there. <laughs> I, th- I think I saw you on YouTube as well, right? I, I am on, I am on YouTube. It's my, my personal name and, and I don't really do a whole lot on YouTube. Um, I, I have, I did actually have a video that hit 1.5 million views. Um, and oh, it's a nice. total lark uh it, it's like how do you clean your uh kitchen exhaust fan uh filter and i guess everyone has this problem because 1.5 million views later um it's it, like it keeps making us money every month it's it's crazy uh we just recorded this little video of the the, the short version is you can use your dish detergent so the dishwasher detergent to clean grease off of your your filter um, we had like 12 years of caked up gunk on it when we bought the house and it had never been cleaned. And we were like, Oh, you have to clean these things. Okay. So we, we figured out this, this trick that how to clean it, put it on YouTube and like 1.5 million views later, but there's some cool travel videos on there. Um, as I, I like the travel videos better. They just don't sell as well as the cleaning the, uh, kitchen exhaust, <laughs> uh, vent filter. But, but anyway, yeah. Um, YouTube, Twitter, uh, the blog rootofgood.com. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Justin, for uh, taking the time and I hope you enjoy the trips and uh, hopefully we talk uh, at a later date. For sure. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. All right. What a great episode. I hope you guys would agree with that. And thank you, Justin, from The Root of Good for joining again. If you want to check out anything that we discussed, I linked everything in the show notes below. So all the articles and resources. And if you're not following the Inspire to Fire podcast and brand, you can at Instagram and Twitter, inspiretofire.com. You can find me there as well as you can check out a lot more resources on my website, inspiretofire.com. I've got a free fire calculator there that you can use as well as a Roth conversion ladder spreadsheet all for free. So you go ahead and check that out. Lastly, I just want to encourage you guys again to check out the Audible Premium Plus free trial going on. That is in the description below. That's 30 days free of Audible Premium Plus. You get to keep one free book of your choosing as well, and it's of no cost to you. All you have to do is cancel within 30 days if you don't like it. And uh, again, no harm, no foul there. So thank you again for sticking to the end. And until next time.